Revolution, featuring your host, Heisey Ludmers. This is our special Mother's Day Magical Moment segment, and I am actually very pleased to be joined today by my friend and compatriot and co-conspirator in all things magical, Mary Beth. Welcome, Mary Beth. Hello. And she is here to represent the divine feminine for us on this Mother's Day. She will be the stand-in for all mothers. Wow, no pressure there. (laughs) (laughs) So today, we're going to focus on more magical experiences and moments. This isn't so um, material-heavy as it is taking the time to create that magical space and have that magical experience, because we're going to be doing some things that go from the very grand, which is doing some magical moments around connecting with the Mother Goddess and the Divine Feminine, as well as bringing it down to the more personal level of doing some things that are involved in connecting with our own mothers and grandmothers and that kind of thing. Having said that, I think that we will get started. We're going to offer you a few different uh, ideas that you could consider for this Mother's Day or for any time that you want to be connecting with the Mother Goddesses, the Mother Energy, the Divine Feminine, So our first offering to you today is a Mother Goddess Day prayer. I would suggest that you set aside some quiet time, find a space where you can do this so that you will be uninterrupted and you can really just kind of focus and stay in that meditative state throughout. If you have a table or an altar, then I would suggest that you place a white candle, preferably one that is female-shaped if you have one or can find one, otherwise just a white candle will be all right. 
Place that at the center of the altar or on the table so that it's in front of you. And you might arrange some fresh flowers around it just to give that sense of beauty and femininity to the space and to what you're focusing on. The candle might represent the mother goddess. If you work with one in particular or if you have a relationship with one or more particular mother goddesses or you can use it to simply represent all mother goddesses in their infinite and pure divinity just that infinite sense of the mother goddess energy and then you might consider anointing the candle with a few drops of frankincense and myrrh oil and then light the candle you might also light some incense maybe the same frankincense and myrrh to help set that space and once you've lit that candle, gaze into the flame and allow your consciousness to expand and rise to the heavens to meet the mother goddesses where they reside. When you feel ready, offer a prayer or words of gratitude or whatever you feel appropriate to say to them. Let the words come from your heart and let the smoke of the incense carry your words to the heavens. One suggestion that you might say is this prayer by Elizabeth Barrett to the mother goddesses in any or all of her many guises. Feel free to say this or to adapt this in some way. You can utilize this or work with it. You might change some of the mother goddesses that are named to ones that you work with or that you know, but this will give you an example of one that you could use. Tiamat, deep sea womb of all that lives, Inanna, Queen of the first city, Uruk. Danu, spirit of the Emerald Isle. Isis, bright-winged one of the River Nile. Sophia, fount of heavenly wisdom. Freya, bearer of Rasingamen. Shakti, power of love and creation. Gaia, broad belly of the fertile earth. Great Mother, we hail you by all of your names. And next, we have a magical moment with Mother Earth. Mother's Day falls during the sign of Taurus, which is ruled by Venus, which gives us a very strong feminine Earth sign. Take some time to honor Mother Earth on this Mother's Day by planting some seeds for an herb garden. Seeds that you might consider for herbs that are sacred to Venus could include aloe, beans, burdock, catnip, elder, feverfew, mallow, myrtle, rose, sorrel, spearmint, and thyme. As they grow, you can remember your connection to Mother Earth by using herbs from your own land for their medicinal and culinary properties. Plant the seeds outdoors or in clay pots using organic soil. Dedicate your herbs to Mother Earth. You might put some copper coins in the soil as an offering to Mother Earth so that she can help your herbs to grow strong. You might place a green candle next to your herbs to represent the fertile green earth. Light the candle and express your gratitude for all that Mother Earth has given you. Next is a magical moment with our ancestral mothers. Mother's Day offers us the opportunity to remember all those mothers that came before us, whose ancestral lineage and DNA we carry within us, 
whether related to us by blood or by spirit. Set aside some time to sit at your altar or outside or wherever you might have some space and time to reflect on those who have come before you. Light a white candle and some incense to carry your consciousness back to all those foremothers that have preceded you. Spend some time meditating on the question, who has influenced you on your path? An ancestor, a writer, a social leader, a priestess, a goddess. Meditate on this. As these women and their names come to you, write their names on a piece of paper, perhaps also including some words of why and what they mean to you. Once you have your list, bear witness to these women who have come before you by reading aloud their names. You might say thank you or my gratitude to you for each of the names as you read them. Once you have read your list of names aloud, offer the paper to the fire of the candle. As it burns and the smoke carries your gratitude to those ancestral mothers and women, you might consider a prayer, this particular one by Abby Willowroot, but again, you can adapt it in any way you want. Ancient mothers, cave mothers, foremothers of all, I am of your blood, I am of your bone, I am you incarnate, you live in me, in my mother and in my mother's mother, you are alive, in each cell and bone, in every part of me, I call to you now, seeking your wisdom and your ancient knowing, calling out to you, reaching out past millennia of change. Hear me now, grandmother of my clan. I seek your ancient wisdom. You who are, she who was the first, giver of life to generations. Your children have lived for thousands of years. Each one of them is you. Each of your daughters carries within her your memories, your skills. Help me now, great clan mother, to know your powerful wisdom. Bring visions to me from the depths of my bloodline and bring glimpses of their lives. Help me to know and celebrate now the ancient power of my great and loving bloodline. Help me to live always in your knowledge that it may be so for all time and all eternity. A magical moment with an Egyptian prayer to the blessed dead. A more immediate remembrance on Mother's Day and a more personal way that we often are celebrating that day is in honor and remembrance of our mothers and grandmothers who have passed from this life to the next. In ancient Egypt, an altar bearing the image or name of the blessed dead would have a bouquet of fresh, fragrant flowers placed upon it. This echoes our modern-day tradition of visiting a grave site and laying flowers on the grave in remembrance. If you are doing that on this Mother's Day, or on any day, you might consider reciting this ancient Egyptian prayer that is taken from the book Eternal Egypt by Richard Reedy, and this particular passage was adapted from the ritual of Amenophis, in the Hieratic Papyri at the British Museum. 
this Egyptian prayer was traditionally recited four times. So we offer it to you here that you might consider reciting it when you're laying flowers on a grave of a loved one. Kansu, son of Amun, causes Amun to be your protection as you live eternally. May Amun fulfill what you desire, O beloved one. May you be a favored one, and may Amun favor you for all of your good deeds. May he favor you and love you. May he perpetuate you, and may you live and may your soul live both now and forever. You're listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Heisey. Hope when you take that jump, you don't feel the fall. Hope when the water rises, you build a wall. crowd screams out they're screaming your name hope if everybody runs you choose to stay I hope that you fall in love and it hurts so bad Revolutionary guest this month is Denise Green, executive coach, speaker, founder and CEO of Brilliance Inc. and author of the new book, Work Life Brilliance, Tools to Break Stress and Create the Life and Health You Crave. With more than 14 years industry experience as a leader at Oracle Corporation and Charles Schwab, Denise founded Brilliance Inc. in 2008 and has coached and trained thousands of people in high-tech, financial services, healthcare, and consumer products industries, helping her clients lower stress and improve their health, relationships, and effectiveness. In 1992, Denise was in a major car accident that changed her life forever. And in case she didn't learn the lesson well enough, the universe sent her conditions including rheumatoid arthritis and Lyme disease. She knows how to achieve great things in spite of real physical limitations and has devoted her life to helping others overcome anything. Her studies of applied neuroscience gives her knowledge of the brain and behavioral change that allows her to help people quickly develop effective, lasting habits. 
She holds a bachelor's degree in French from Arizona State University, a certificate from the Paris-Sorbonne University, and a Master of Liberal Arts from Stanford University. Denise currently lives and thrives in Oakland, California, and you can find out more about Denise and her work by visiting her website at www.brillianceinc.com. So please join me in welcoming this month's revolutionary guest, Denise Green. With every Welcome, Denise Green. Thank you so much for joining me on Revolution today. It is, as always, a pleasure to have a chance to talk with you. It is. Well, I was going to say the pleasure is all mine, but I know you're being very sincere. I'm very grateful you asked. And you've just released a book that I think touches on something that probably 90% of people either struggle with or at least have heard about as being a struggle for many people. And that's about the idea of work-life balance. And the full title of your book is Work-Life Brilliance, Tools to Break Stress and Create the Life and Health You Crave. So one of the things I wanted to first ask about is right there on the cover of the book. And, you know, we often hear about that idea of work-life balance. But on your book cover, the title of the book actually has the word balance crossed out and replaced by the word brilliance. So I'm wondering if you can start there by saying, uh, you know, why you chose to do that and what the difference that you feel is between balance and brilliance. I'm glad you start with that because that was very intentional and it was hard to even find a designer who would make that. Um, make a cover with that. They were all trying to just take out the word balance completely. And for me, it was really important that people see a strike through, through the word, because I think that word is causing people a lot of pain. And I wanted them to see that they can just not just let it go, that they can, um, they can notice that it's caused them pain and that if they continue to try and search for it, um, it's not going to create what they're really seeking for, what they're really seeking. I think people are wanting to feel better. I think they're wanting to feel less stressed. I think they're wanting to feel more meaning, um, closer connections to people, better health, and sometimes just more like they're living into their potential. And this quest for balance does not come close to capturing the complexity of what people are really seeking. I think that, you know, oftentimes um, when I talk about balance with someone and I give them the image of the scales of balance, and if something is out of balance, you know, one, one scale is higher than the other. And I will say balance isn't always about everything equal. It also can be about proportion, which if we think of like a recipe, 
Not everything is in equal amount in a recipe. It's in proper proportion to bring the whole balance of the recipe into manifestation. <laughs> um, and, you know, so with the scales, it's about do I add a little bit to the one that's up high? Do I need to jettison a few things that are on the one that's down low? But each of that will bring things into better proportion rather than balance. Um, and so for me, that helps to move away from thinking that how do I spend an equal amount of time having fun versus working rather than what's the right proportion for me of the different facets and areas of my life. So from there, how did you then come to the word brilliance to be the, the, the replacement word for balance? Yeah. Well, I think your reframe is perfect. I love it. And I was picturing the scales too with regard to balance. And um, for me, brilliance is when you take all those ingredients and you make the soup and it's all integrated and, and it just reaches all of your senses in a, in a harmonious way. And when I said about the word brilliance, when I founded my company back in 2008, I just left corporate. And I was trying to figure out, I, I toyed with another name for a while. Uh, and then my then business partner and I were brainstorming things. And I thought of this word. And I love the word brilliance. First of all, I just love the sound of it. You know, Guinness commercials in London and brilliant. Um, but for me, it was not about intellect. Um, it was more about the way they use it in the UK, which is to note that, denote that something is not just lovely or good, but that it is optimal. It is as good as it gets. And for me, I was on this quest to reach my own potential. And for me, that means we all have a light inside of us and it can feel really snuffed out at times. And how, what do we do to ignite that and make ourselves our most brilliant self? So that plus the wordplay of balance versus brilliance um, with my company is Brilliance Inc. just seemed like the perfect fit. And I actually didn't come up with that title. Um, it was first called Burned Out to Brilliant. And that just didn't seem to really resonate with people. A lot of people don't identify themselves as burned out. And it was my line editor who just brainstormed with me and tossed out that title and it immediately hit. And I thought, that's, that's it. Well, and, and burned out has kind of a negative connotation right from the beginning of, the, of saying it. And some people, right. like you said, either don't feel that they're quite at that extreme point and so may not feel like what you have to offer in this book would be something that they would need. Um, but as you were talking about the soup, for, you know, and brilliance, apparently we're hungry because we're talking about food all the time. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, to me, that brilliance part also is like when you find that that one special little ingredient that you put in that suddenly just makes the soup pop. And you go, oh, my gosh, yep. it was a soup. And now all of a sudden it's an amazing <laughs> feast of the, the taste buds. Um, and right. I think that that's also something that you really uh, are able to recognize and and learn in your book and the things that you offer is people sometimes think there's also some very big major things and changes that they're going to have to do or implement in themselves or lives in order to be able to come to this place. But just like with that one little ingredient of like, I just threw in a little bit of cayenne pepper and that made that soup, you know, go over the top. There's 
small things and it may not be so overwhelming of something that has to be done. It may just be little tweaks here and there that can be done to start to bring that brilliance back or to enhance that brilliance in someone's life. Absolutely. I have been saying for many years with my clients that I help them find the least amount of effort for the most benefit. Because we're too busy. We don't have, most of us are, um, don't have time for big effort. And it's often a waste of effort, even if you can convince your brain to make humongous changes. So, um, you know, in the medical field, they call it minimum effective dose. Um, in an ingredient, it could be what is the, the minimum amount of cardamom or salt I can put in here. And, you know, once you get too much, then it, it overdoes it. So there, there is this right amount. And I, I love the idea of helping people make small changes and get big results from it. Which, of course, we will remind people doesn't minimize the fact that they still have to be willing to do the work, <laughs> even if it's in small amounts, rather than thinking it's just going to be, quote unquote, easy and they're not really going to have to do much to make it happen. Right. It's, it's just, I think it's the Lao about the journey of a thousand miles begins with one small step. You still got to walk a thousand miles, but you're going to do it one step at a time. Um, and it won't feel daunting that way. Right. Um, so, and you've mentioned a couple of times the, the company that you started a few years ago. So can you just tell us what that company is, what you do in your company, and how that relates to the book that you've now brought out? Yeah, uh, well, my goal is really to help people reach their potential. And we start wherever they are. And for most people, we end up, um, and I'm a coach, so it is a coaching company. I also do workshops and speaking, uh, speaking and training. And every one of my clients, whether or not they say they're working on work-life balance, everybody has stress. Everybody has challenges. Our modern workday, our society, uh, our constantly on environment and technology makes stress universal. So it was important for me to talk about that in the book and in my, my talks, make sure I give people tools because you cannot reach your potential if your nervous system is fried and your cortisol, and cortisol is being dumped into your system because your adrenals are working overtime. So, um, I like to say, yeah, I'm a coach who tries to help people calm their stress and then figure out what would be the most, uh, the best use of their precious energy and time so we can help them be more effective and feel more effective and have more meaning and joy in life. Well, and I feel like, you know, when I kind of observe our society, <laughs> it seems as if being stressed or even being able to say I'm too busy or I I don't have time or I barely have enough time to get everything done in a day is almost at this point something that A, we're supposed to aspire to because somehow it represents we're successful and B, if we're not in that mode, then somehow we're not taking full advantage of life and living every moment. Um, and so uh, I, I'm wondering, first of all, if you can maybe talk about whether there are any positive or upsides to things like stress and being busy, and then what are some of the, I mean, I think we're aware of what some of the downsides are of stress, but what are some of the most um, 
prominent indicators that a person might look for in themselves or in their lives to say, I'm under too much stress or I'm creating too much stress for myself? Right. There's um, a famous study by Yerkes and Dodson, and they have a curve. I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners have seen this. But um, it's an uh, inverted U shape. And at the top of the U is optimal stress. And other people may have seen um, the Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Mihai's, he's a positive psychologist, one of the founders of positive psychology and his flow model which has something similar, which says you, unless you have some degree of stress, you are not growing, you are not thriving, you will not find that sense of flow. Um, I think about it as, you know, I was just thinking we're in the finals of NBA season and don't quiz me on anything that's going on because I'm completely clueless, unfortunately. But, um, but I, I do have a great respect for, for athletes and when they're in uh, a game, when they're in the zone, they're under a lot of stress, but it's, it's not acute stress. It's flow stress where they are highly aware. Their sentences, sent, uh, um, <laughs> senses, not sentences, my senses are highly acute and they're able to just take in everything that's going on and hopefully perform optimally if they've had enough to eat and they, they're not dehydrated and they're not over, overly tired. Um, and then once the game is over, it's over. You know, that, that moment is gone. And what you hope is then they don't, you know, then they would go into heightened stress if they lamented, oh, I made that play wrong or, oh, I lost the team the game. And you see that a lot. And then people don't perform well the next game because they're mentally stressed. But if you can just be in that moment, in that flow, and do your best because your senses are so heightened under that kind of minor stress, it's, but most of us aren't there very often. That kind of stress feels really good because we're growing, we're evolving, and we're accomplishing things. We're getting things done. And if you can have even an hour and a half in your day like that, that would be amazing. Most of us have many hours of more acute stress, which is the kind where your adrenals are pumping cortisol into your system, your sympathetic nervous system is firing um, all the time, constantly, so that you're in fight or flight mode, which doesn't mean necessarily you're being aggressive, but it might mean that you're being snarky or um, making assumptions, negative assumptions about people or um, being insensitive and self-focused. So it shows up in ways like that, which are, I don't know about you, but, you know, quite common uh, for me. And that's when you notice, okay, some, my stress is too high. Okay, when it comes to busy, there's you know, only so much time in a day. And when you're doing one activity, you're saying no to another activity. So when people are super busy, I'm just wondering, what's not getting done? And I think we need to have, it's like a wave. Yeah, there are going to be periods of being busy. And then there needs to be some rest, just like the professional athletes or the marathon runners. You know, you can't go forever. Um, athletes know they have to rest. But professionals, um, you know, laymen, um, we forget. Oh, wait, no, I have to, I have to stop. That's going to be new. Well, and a lot of that speaks to what I think many people both aren't and or struggle with is remaining present and aware of your own self and knowing your own limits. Uh, 
Because when you talked about like the athletes, you know, it, it made me think of in a similar way. It made me think of like when somebody goes to the gym, you, you stress the muscles in order for them to actually grow. But you have to know what your limit is so that you don't overstress the muscle and then injure the muscle rather than just push it to the point it needs in order to become stronger. And that to me is about being very present so that you're very aware of how is this feeling and also knowing yourself, meaning knowing your body. So you know what it feels like for you when something is going to be too much rather than, and this is the danger I think a lot of people fall into, is comparing themselves to someone or something else and then thinking they need to somehow be able to operate at that level rather than simply being able to accept and recognize what level they operate at optimally. Right. So how, how often do you find with clients um, that you are having to talk to them about stop comparing yourself to either unrealistic expectations they've set for themselves or other people or other things outside of them that are causing them to push themselves too hard or try to do things that they may just not be ready for yet? Constantly. I think we've hit on B, um, well, I don't know if it's B, but a great human struggle. Our mind wants to compare ourselves to others. And you know, as you've probably read, I instruct, you can't stop the mind from comparing, but you can trick it and you can compare yourself to people who have less. Because there's always somebody somewhere in the world who would give everything to be you. We don't do that. We have to force ourselves to do that. Um, I ask in my writing, what are you, whose standard are you unfair, unfairly comparing yourself to? I remember it's when I was in the yoga class, she said the hardest thing about this class is taking your ego out. And for me, it was a little bit easier because, you know, breaking my back in a car accident and my numerous injuries helped remind me. So you were talking about sensing and being present. Um, pain and injury will help remind you that, oh, yes, this is a limitation. But for a lot of people, they don't have those kind of limitations, and so they will push themselves beyond what is necessary. And, you know, beyond what um, is going to do any good. Well, what, what do you say to people then that, buy into the the mantras that our society often has of you know when you reach your limit just push through it or you know no gain no pain kind of thing which i understand the idea behind that but i think it's gotten kind of misrepresented to the point that people think that that, that it causes people to to push too hard um in order to think that they they are going to gain anything yeah you know, I often don't, I don't run into that very often with my clients. I don't know why. I think by the time they get a coach, they realize that things aren't working and they might be more receptive. And I do warn them that they are going to experience some pain. Change is pain. It's just going, they're going to have to reframe what causes them pain. Because to your point right now, not pushing through whatever this thing is they're telling themselves they need to do, you know, whether it's clean up their email inbox every week. You know, that may be the thing that's causing them pain. 
And personally, if you opened my email, you'd probably see that I have, I don't know, 20,000 emails in my inbox. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't worry about it. Yes, I could probably spend an entire weekend filing, but it's, it doesn't, it's not going to gain me anything. My system is fine. Works fine. So why do that to myself? I'd rather spend the time working, writing, being with my daughter. But it's silly things like that, um, that people, that I have to help them break the thought pattern on. The obsessing about those things. Yeah. So uh, what, what would be one suggestion or tip that you could give people that they could try to start implementing right now for themselves to help begin recognizing and breaking something like that in, their, in themselves or in their lives? Well, the first thing you have to do is notice what is it costing you. And in the book, I have everybody do a life satisfaction assessment. And that's just to get really clear, you know, bring that self-awareness that you were talking about to what is the one thing in my life that has such a big gap that if I don't close it, it is going to eventually and maybe very soon cause me tremendous pain. And with that clarity, they're able to say, okay, now let's look at the things that, what am I spending a lot of time? Like I recently had two people in a group have areas, areas in their life where they were oversatisfied. They were so satisfied with this category, and it was actually helping others, service to others, and yet it wasn't that valued to them. So they were overinvesting, giving, giving, giving to other people. And they were doing too much. Yet they were neglecting, and in this case, health. They were neglecting health. So once they have that clarity, it makes it a little easier. But then to answer your question, so what one, what one little thing? And this, um, the first thing I would say is start to notice your emotional state. Just when you're feeling anxious, pause. And then Ask yourself, what is the thought that is accompanying or immediately preceded this feeling of anxiety? And then see if you can shift the thought. I'll tell you an example of this from this morning. I was um, quite busy. I got up at 5.30, which is an hour and a half before my daughter gets up, which is usually enough. But this morning, I got some things in that I wasn't expecting and so after I did my morning routine and I finally opened my email, boom, I had more than I expected. So I was in a little bit of a threat state mentally, stress-wise. And then um, I knew I had an early morning meeting, wasn't going to be able to walk the dog, which is very unusual. Um, and I had to get my daughter to school and the kitchen was a mess uh, from, you know, just everything from the morning. And my daughter's casually eating breakfast, reading a book very at peace. And she says, mom, can you give me a glass of water? Fill my glass of water. And meanwhile, she's, you know, six feet from the refrigerator where the water is. And I noticed myself get so resentful because here I am in constant motion right now. And I said something snarky to her. And then I realized, wait a minute, hold on. I noticed. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling resentment. And I said, I'm sorry. And then I shifted. And I said, 
So as you can tell, I'm pretty busy this morning. The next time you need something, I'm going to get you your glass of water, but the next time you need something, I'd really appreciate it if you could get it yourself. So I go about doing my thing. Next thing I know, about 10 minutes later, she's at the microwave reheating some breakfast that had gone cold. Like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if I hadn't stopped and paused and taken a breath and noticed, I'm having a resentful thought right now. I don't want to be resentful to my daughter. That's not how I want to start my day or have her start her day. So creating those pauses and that self-awareness. And then it's not that hard to make the shift. So now if I flip that, what would what what suggestion would you have if people are feeling the opposite where they tend to feel a lack of motivation rather than feel like they're doing too much, but they may talk a lot about something they want to do, but they are always procrastinating or feel a lack of motivation or can't quite push themselves to actually take that first step or implement or initiate doing. Yeah. It doesn't happen a whole lot because when somebody has an accountability partner, like a coach, um, they kind of feel like they need to, but you're absolutely right. Um, back to my daughter, she's working on a science project and she had a panic moment because she realized it was due in a week. And I said, honey, the hardest thing about a project is not doing the project. But how much pain are you in right now? Like, I'm so scared. Like, start working on it. So really, you know, identifying how much is this procrastination hurting you? What are you saying to yourself about it? And then I have them chunk it down. So, you know, science project, kind of big. Um, for my clients, you know, losing weight, kind of big, getting a promotion, whatever it is they're trying to work on, improving a relationship, really big stuff. And as you've probably read, you know, I have people chunk it down into a tiny, pathetic baby step. So, you know, like, what's an example? So what should we use as an example of something people aren't motivated to do? think of what you just did. So people will talk a lot about, you know, oh, I really want to write a book. Yes. And then they never seem to make the time or sit down to actually start writing the book. And then either feel sorry for themselves about not accomplishing something or feel critical of themselves, or then start to create this whole fear around, well, if I start now, it's too late, or somebody else has already come out with a book like that, or, you know, whatever it is. Um, yeah. So, so you know, something like that, where it's like, stop getting into the circular headspace and come back into the body and just start doing something. Because I think if we use the word stress, they're creating more stress around how they think it's going to go or what they're afraid is going to happen than the stress that would be caused by actually just doing it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Okay, that, I love that example. It's a great one. Um, and as you know, I stressed about this for years. So one of the exercises I have my clients do before they do the life assessment is the should exercise. And it's this horribly painful but very, very short exercise where they brainstorm all the things they tell themselves they should be doing. And should is one of the worst words. It's just a toxic word. It makes you feel like just total crap. And on my list, my long list of shoulds forever was write a book. Never mind that I was very sick. Um, I was getting a divorce. 
uh, my brain wasn't working because it was full of Lyme disease and mold. There was no way I could have written a book. Yet I kept shooting myself that I should be writing a book. Uh, so I had my clients do this so they don't have to have the same pain that I did. And then we do the life satisfaction assessment and they pick one thing on that should list to upgrade to a must. So if you really want to do something, like lose weight or write a book, you have to upgrade it to a must do. And a must do is something like breathing. If you don't, it's like to your brain, if you don't do this, you're going to die. That's what it should feel like. It is non-negotiable. And we all know that when we make something non-negotiable, all of a sudden, all these answers start coming, all these resources start coming, all these ideas start coming. But it's not going to be necessarily easy, but um, it becomes doable. And then you take a baby step. And for me, once I upgraded the book to a must-do, it's got to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen, but it's got to happen. The baby step I took was literally I opened my computer and I created a folder called Denise's book. Done. That was my first step. I was thinking, and I said this in the book too, that you got to give yourself a break because if you see something on the life assessment and you realize this is either outside my span of control because it involves another person, like in my example, it was relationship and I was not ready to look at that. I literally kept skipping the chapter in the Tony Robbins audio program. I listened to every <laughs> chapter except that one. I knew it needed to change, but I was not ready. It was not within my span of control. And so I think you've got to cut yourself some slack. And if you're not ready to take it on, you choose the next biggest pain. Because that will give you some confidence. It will give you a win in something that's still really important in your life. If it's, if it's not hurting enough to rise to the top, then it's not time. Right. It's kind of like if somebody's trying to break an addiction or a habit. And I don't mean like maybe not, you know, heroin or something, but let's say just to like caffeine, you know, or something like that. It's like right. you don't have to go cold turkey. You can just maybe if you have three cups of coffee a day, maybe see what happens if you cut back to two a day. And then once you've done that, cut back to one a day. You know, so you don't have to make a painful process where there doesn't need to be one and still be able to accomplish the goals that by allowing for enough time to do it rather than wanting to have overnight results. Exactly. Cold turkey works for very, very few people. Yeah. And I think that the pain people assume they will feel or a lot of times experience is because they've tried to do something that's going to give them instant results rather than taking the time and finding the best way to start moving into and towards the goal. Right. And the other thing is you're not going to be doing this alone. I mean, people think writing a book is a solitary exercise and it can be, but that I found is a really, really dumb way to do it. I worked for over a year and that included a lot of not working because I was totally stuck until I joined a boot camp with a publisher and design editor and I needed the deadlines. I needed um, a sounding board, someone who was in the industry, um, who had, had this eye, and when I got stuck, could help me. I, and I don't know why I didn't do it earlier, but I didn't, but I finally did. And then, as, as I was telling you earlier, I got, um, I hired a great team, line editor, proofreader, um, designer, and I wasn't 
alone until the very end when I decided to self-publish. Um, but even then, I got friends to help me launch it. So it's very much a communal process, as is any habit change. You need support or else it's going to be infinitely harder. Well, and, and I think that, you know, when you say, I don't know why I didn't do that sooner, it, it goes back to that idea that we tend to buy into either comparison or this these romantic images that we have been fed through media, society, et cetera, because what's the romantic image of the writer? That you go off and you're sitting someplace alone, isolated from the world, and you probably lose your family in the process because they haven't seen or talked to you in 17 weeks, you know? Um, and then, of course, they want you back as soon as you publish your great bestseller. Um, <laughs> But it, it's it, but what you've just illustrated is the need for people to say, wait, is that right for me? Does that work for me? Or can I allow myself to see and think about a different way rather than just buy into one way, whether it's, well, it worked for this person, so that must be how I need to do it to make it work versus, well, I use that as guidance and I could try that, but that's not working. But is there another way? And people have quite the blinders on, which I think creates a lot of that stress and imbalance and and shields the brilliance from what could be. Right. Um, so was it when you had the accident and everything, was, was that the impetus for thinking about writing this book or was this something that had been germinating for you prior to that? What was, what, what is it that kind of led you to the wanting to the idea and the writing of the book. Yeah, the accident was a long time ago. It was in 1993 when I was a senior in college. So that, that didn't um, spawn the book idea. However, it was a piece of it because that accident completely changed my life as, you know, as anything like that would for anybody. Um, but it set me on a path of actually caring about my person as a whole. Um, before then, I paid no attention to the fact that I had a body. I didn't notice I had stress. I mean, it was, I was just completely disconnected. I was so type A on the move. So it made me a much more compassionate, empathetic, different person in search of holistic answers. And then in corporate, when I presently found myself in corporate, um, I ended up gravitating toward the human development aspect of leadership. And, and I just loved helping people. And one of the ways I found I could help people, um, and my, my nature is somewhere between introvert and extrovert. So I loved being up in front of a room, but I couldn't do that every day. And it didn't create lasting change. One training program wasn't gonna create lasting change. So um, I started writing what I was just, you know, short articles and not a lot of people saw them, but those that did seemed to really benefit from it. And at some point it became, I am being selfish by not writing a book. I, I am withholding help that I could be giving to the world. And this is really annoying. So I can't say that there was one, you know, one moment. A lot of it had to do with also being free of the mold. So my brain was working better. Um, being in a new home where the energy was better, I could think better. Um, it just felt like it was the right time. And how, how did you, because um, you mentioned that you ended up self-publishing, how did you decide to go that 
route rather than, and maybe you did, I don't know, um, seek out a, a more uh, a publishing house or something like that? Yeah, well, I took some classes with um, a design editor slash publisher, and I could have published with her and used all of her team, and, and they're great. It would have cost, um, a, in my mind, a lot of money. And um, I didn't have it. And even if I had have it, had it, it just didn't seem. She she gave me enough knowledge and enough tools to know how to do it on my own. So even though it was scarier, if I had unlimited funds, I probably would have gone that route. And through just research, I felt like a traditional publisher wasn't right for me. I didn't want to give up my rights. I wanted to write the book my way. I liked the book as it ended up, and. Traditional publishing could have t- could have pushed it out another year or two, so I didn't want to do that. I was done, and and I just followed the steps that I learned through um, studying with his publisher about how to self-publish with Amazon, and I, I think Amazon's the only funnel I really needed. But yeah, so I just weighed the pros and cons and pre- did it pretty logically. Um, although it was scary, it would have been kind of comforting to have a publisher, but Again, I would have had to give up all the rights because I got to write it my way. Which is just a reminder to people that there are many ways to go about accomplishing and achieving whatever goals they may have. So if getting a book published through a publisher for whatever reason isn't working for someone, there's other ways to do it rather than just giving up. All of that illustrates don't create <laughs> more stress for yourself assuming there's no other possibility by looking at everything as either or rather than seeing there may be a multiple uh, number of ways to accomplish something. If we can just relax into accepting it may be different than how we had thought, but that doesn't mean it necessarily will be harder. Um, So I'm thinking we'll play a little, a little, well, word association. All right. It can be phrase association because I know it's not just going to be word, one word. Um, There's a a few key aspects of what you are trying to accomplish in your book and what you're presenting in your book. So I'm going to say a few of them. And for each one that I say, um, I would like you to offer a suggestion or tip or jumping off point for people that they could say, oh, wait, that sounds just like me. And then you offer something to say, and here's what you can do right now to start working on that, improving that, changing that. I'm just laughing because I'm noticing I'm feeling a lot of pressure and I just got a brain threat. So I'm now hitting my calm point on my hand, acupressure point. <laughs> I, you know, right. I, it, always, <laughs> it always amuses me when people that I either talk about and ask to interview for the show or even that come on the show and they get so nervous and they're like either, well, I don't know what I would talk about or, you know, well, can you send me things in advance? And I'm like, you, you do realize I'm asking because you've already been doing things. It shows that you have lots of knowledge and an expertise in this field. So I don't think you're really going to be at a loss. You know, I'm not going to suddenly say, so how would you describe the difference between string theory and quantum physics? <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, it's the comparing mind. It is the mind. Goes, and I was literally telling you that I was, you're absolutely right. So experts still go into parasympathetic stress which is the freeze mode and you know that 
well, you, you probably have never been. <laughs> I can't imagine you freezing. Um, but where you're asked the question and you know you know the answer. And later, an hour later, you hit your forehead. But that's what, so I just um, like to call that out to your listeners. That yes. So the first one is <laughs> perfect for what we were just talking about. Shifting negative thoughts instantly in order to create a naturally more positive outlook or thought process. And part of it was what I, what I did. And that is you've got to learn to notice the negative thought. Because what happens is if you don't notice it, it starts leaping. And it takes about 90 seconds for the chemicals from a stressful thought to get through your system. So if you keep looping it, you can't interrupt it. So practice noticing when you have negative thoughts. And it shouldn't be too hard because we have five times as many neural processes for negative thinking as positive thinking. And I have a new tip. I have, oh, gosh, I have two great tips. They're not, and I can't take credit for either of them. But um, there's a coach, an amazing coach, Brooke Castillo. She's also an author. Um, but she says, we ask ourselves terrible questions. So when you're having a negative thought, notice what question you're asking yourself. Why am I such a loser? Why am I so fat? Why can't I stick to a diet? Why can't I write a book? Those are terrible questions. Why me is the worst question of all. Why did this happen to me? And learn to ask yourself better questions. Like, what are other ways I could do this? What's another way I could look at this? Who could be out there to support me on this? You can probably plug in many of those into Google. Like if I would have just searched on Google the question, um, who can help me write a book? I bet a lot of good stuff would have come up. So the next one, changing a habit that perhaps we've struggled with changing in the past, but we feel we can no longer continue to keep repeating that cycle. Well, two things I've said already. One is upgrading it to a must. If you've, for example, been trying to lose weight forever and you can't do it, you got to see, is this something I'm willing to die for? Like, is this, is this becoming life or death? Do I have to do this? Because if I have to do it, I'll figure out a way and I'll gather support. And if I'm not ready to take this on, I need to take it off the list. So first I would say, is, is this a must do for you? And if so, what is the smallest, smallest increment of change you can make? Like buying sneakers or um, hiring a personal trainer. For a lot of people, it will involve, the best step will involve reaching out to somebody else. Like when I have been I'm going to combine two things right now. When I have been stuck in a negative thought that was so deep, like when, when I lost one of my best friends, I couldn't get out of it. And I, I literally called another friend um, who happens to also be a coach. And I said, I, I can't stop this story. I know I need to, and I can't stop it. What's another way I can look at this? My brain was not coming up with anything when I said, what's another way I can look, look at this? So oftentimes, your first step should involve reaching out to another human being whether it's to change a habit or a thought. And then the next one would be, how can we best understand what I call fierce compassion, which is knowing when and how to say no 
and recognizing that may be the best and healthiest thing to do. Yeah, this one amazes me because we've, I don't know who hasn't been in the situation of having somebody say yes to them when they really wanted to say no. And then they deliver subpar or they do it with resentment. Or maybe you can't even tell they're resentful, but if you'd known they were, you would have really wished they hadn't said yes. So we've all been on that side of it. Yet when we're on the other side of it, we forget what a gift it is. We would just rather you say no to us early. And you don't actually have to say the word no. I have, you know, many ways of saying no without saying no. Like, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Um, it's not available. It is such a gift. And um, the main person you're going to be doing harm to is yourself. You're going to be harming your credibility. You're going to be harming all the other things in your life that you're avoiding because um, you're saying yes to the wrong things. And I don't know if I've answered your question about when is the right time. Well, well, but I would also say sometimes saying no is actually in the best interest of the other person. Um, like if, you know, if, if a, a mother has bailed her son out of jail three times for drugs and now he's calling again for the fourth time because he's in jail once again, her willingness to say, no, I'm not going to come bail you out may be hard. And, you know, the mother's instinct may be to say, I want to say yes, because I want to help my child. But every time she said yes, it means there's no real consequence for the son. And so he doesn't learn that there's any reason he needs to actually try to acknowledge and change his drug problem. Right. No, that's a great example. Um, so, so that to me is kind of a when, more. is when, do I need to say no when it actually could be in the best interest of the other person, not so much about, is it going to help me, but is it going yeah. to be in the best interest of the other person that I say no, because maybe they just need to learn how to do something on their own or find their own way rather than taking for granted or relying on me or thinking they can just rely on somebody else in some way. That's a great example. And for the people that are my clients, you know, most of them are in leadership roles and they need to learn to say no to so their direct reports can grow and take on more challenging work. Well, because I would think that it empowers those people more when you say no Absolutely. rather than we're just going to do it for you or hand it over to you in some way, or you just get everything you want with Absolutely. no effort. <laughs> um, right. And if you're constantly saying yes to activities at work, you will burn out because people will keep shoving things at you. I mean, yeah. People don't come to you and say, say no if you want to. <laughs> right. um, they just give it to you and expect you to say yes or no based on what you know about your priorities. Um, so but, you're either going to burn out or you're never going to see your family. Well, and it made me think of, uh, I was thinking when you're talking about like people in, you know, leadership or executive positions, I was thinking like budgets and just saying yes to somebody who comes and says, we need X amount of money to do this if you want us to do this. <laughs> Being able to say right. no, now that doesn't mean you say no, you get zero. It may mean you're asking for right. 100000 we're going to give you 75000 But a lot of times the most creative and innovative solutions come out of the fact that somebody was told no or given less rather than was just given what they asked for and then was able to take the easy way because they already knew how they could do it with that rather than having to employ any sort of creativity around finding a solution. Oh man, that is so true. And I just have to tell you where my mind just went to. This is kind of geeky, but um, some people appreciate this. 
the um, adaptation of Battlestar Galactica, the TV show. Oh, I love um, that show. Wasn't it amazing? Well, the writer, producer, director said the best thing that ever happened to that show was he had no money. It was he had to develop characters. He didn't have fancy. I mean, they did a lot with what they had, but he couldn't do a lot of fancy special effects and of fancy sets. He had to develop characters, and oh my God, was it amazing! I love your example. <laughs> Well, I love your example because I love that show. Uh, <laughs> I'm even geekier because I actually was given the Battlestar Galactica board game for Christmas. Um, I know. <laughs> you got to love it, Starbucks as a woman. I just love that. Yes. So for the last association thing, um, how to recognize and build relationships that help you be your best. So two things. Energy and questions. So questions has to do with the, the questions you ask yourself about the relationships you're in. And the first question has to do with energy. How do I feel when I'm around this person? And I like to use the word ease. And I know easy probably isn't the exact right word because relationships do take work. But the best relationships have a sense of ease where you can just be yourself and you don't have to try and pretend to be somebody else. And you are accepted for that. Now, it doesn't mean that um, you know, they accept you for your heroin addiction and encourage it. <laughs> That's not what I mean. Um, they, um, But there wouldn't be ease in that kind of relationship. Because that, that would always create complication or, you know... Dangerous situations or other things going on with that relationship, it would not create ease in that relationship because the other person would always be stressed or on edge whenever they're around you, especially if you show up, right. you know, uh, right. high. Um, right. So, so it it perfectly illustrates what you were saying. That is it easy in the sense of is there ease? Right. You know, and if we take it to a lesser extent where it's just somebody who wants you to party all the time, I'm, I don't know why we're on this kick, but uh, I'm going with it. Um, <laughs> then you're going to be, whether they want you to be serious all the time or party all the time, it needs to be flow. It needs to match your personality. And it needs, um, if we want to step into our potential, we need people around us who are going to encourage us to do that. So what are the kind of conversations that you're having? I think about the friends I'm so blessed to have. And there is almost zero gossip. Um, we don't even talk about politics that much. In, we're all pretty much aligned and we're all pretty scared. Um, but we're all trying to just do the best we can with it. And um, so we talk about things that make us laugh or I mean, a lot of laughter um, or books we're reading or um, books we're writing or, you know, um, things that help us move forward as human beings. And then when we get stuck, things that help us get unstuck and things that help us relax and just smile and laugh. Um, so there's lots of hugging. There's lots of vulnerability. There's lots of authenticity. Um, if, if, you, if you don't have that, then it's probably not a relationship you want to be in. And my book has a chapter on that, but I got I to gotta give a plug here for the book um, by Amy Banks, Dr. Amy Banks, called Wired to Connect. There's a reason it is a huge praise from um, tough critics. 
it is um, she shines a light on the science, the connection between science and relationships and well-being. And if you ever doubted, if you ever wondered, why am I so stressed? I was just talking to an amazing client I just met. I've already told her I love her. She's amazing um, because of the level of conversation and vulnerability we have. She was saying how she's really stressed. And I was gave her a, you know, a quick overview of the nervous system. And I said, and the thing that stresses all this out even more, because she's not sleeping, is the vagus nerve. And she goes, well, what threatens the vagus nerve? I said, you don't have safe relationships. Well, she just lost her father. And she's in a relationship with a man who um, can't be vulnerable and isn't willing to have the talk about, is this relationship going anywhere? And so I'm like, well, of course you're under tremendous stress. So we had to talk about that. And she says, this is the first time in years that I've been able to be myself in a conversation. And I just thought, oh my God, that's so painful. That's so, um, she was real like that with her dad and he's gone. She doesn't have anybody anymore to, to be like that with. And it could be her mom, but her mom's grieving too. So um, it's so important to our mental health and our physical health to have relationships where you have that ease and you can just be you no matter how brilliant or crummy you feel on that day. So as we move to the, the close of our conversation, I would, as I do with every guest like to do two things. One, pose a question to you that a previous guest had asked, not knowing who would get the question. And then I'm going to ask you for a question to pose for a future guest. Okay. So the, the question from a previous guest comes from uh, David Hilfstein, who is an actor in New York, but also talked about his journey to Israel where he reconnected with his roots uh, as from coming from a, a Jewish background and his religion. Um, and he asks this question, when was the last time you felt truly free and at one with yourself, the surroundings and the universe? That word free is a very powerful one to me. And it's um, something I aspire to, and I haven't quite gotten there completely. Um, but I think for me, the closest I've been, um, at least in recent memory, was just last month with my daughter on vacation. I hadn't been on vacation in a long time. And I'm in the woods a lot, but I love the beach, warm beaches. And something about the, the sound of the ocean, the negative ions. Um, and I was in a place where there were lots of languages being spoken, um, multi-ethnic, um, and between the scenery, the moonlight, the beach, the people, um, I felt completely present and free. Um, I was there eight nights. It wasn't until day six that I even input my password into the Wi-Fi. So I had no idea what was going on in the world, and it was great. I wasn't connected to news social media, email. I didn't even have a weather forecast. I had nothing. <laughs> it was just, let's just go with it. Let's go with the flow. That felt free. It almost made me, it also made me think of the, um, the person you were just talking about that I would think at least for a moment, she felt truly free because she suddenly was able to have a, the kind of conversation and be in that moment that she hadn't experienced in a long time. Yeah. 
yeah, her real self was free. So whether it, you know, is something that is momentary or whether it's something that is a feeling we have for an extended period of time, but either way, just like the points you were making earlier, the key is we have to be conscious and aware and present so that we can actually experience what it feels like to be free even in that moment. So what question would you like to pose to a future guest? And to all of the listeners who are listening as well. I would like to ask them, who in your life will you tell today how grateful you are to them and why and how much they matter to you so much? An excellent question. And of course, the reminder that we should have a a daily gratitude practice. Yes. And I've um, sent out a couple of thank yous today, but I'm going to take the opportunity to, I don't know if I, I think I've told you, Heisey, but I don't know if I've told you um, how grateful I am for you and the role you've played in my life. Well, that's very kind of you to say, but I, I, I just, I just give little nudges. It's up to the people themselves. <laughs> um, you give little nudges, but you, you do what I was saying I did for that client. You help people um, have a safe place where they can say anything and have clarity and not be judged. And that is a priceless gift. Well, I'm, I'm glad to know that what I aspire to try to create is actually being accomplished. So the name of your book is Work Life Brilliance, Tools to Break Stress and Create the Life and Health You Crave. And I know it's available as an ebook on Amazon. Is is it available elsewhere or is Amazon the one place to get it? Amazon is the one place to get it and the audiobook will be available soon. We just finished recording it. We're in final edits. And that was fun. It was. It was really fun. Um, again, working with a professional, you know, instead of putting a mic on my own computer and figuring that out, why not hire a professional? They want to do it and they're brilliant. Um, and the print book is um, ready to go. I'm going to try and just drop it at the same time as the audiobook, um, both on Amazon. And can you let people know your website, Facebook page, whatever you have that they can find out a more information about you and then also perhaps contact you if they would like to do some coaching work with you? Yes. So the website is um, brilliantinc.com. So that's spelled B-R-I-L-L-I-A-N-C-E-I-N-C.com. And that will be also to my contact page. So it'll give you my social media links to LinkedIn, Facebook, um, Twitter. And um, it'll also give you my email, um, which is denise at brilliantinc.com. And it'll tell you a little bit more about the talks I do and the workshops coaching that I do. All right. Well, Denise Green, thank you so much for taking time to be here and share your wisdom and brilliance with us. It's my pleasure. And congratulations on finally having the book out in the world. Now that is a true pleasure. I mean, as anybody knows, when you actually accomplish your goal, man, is it a weight off. It feels so good. And Just as you did me, I extend a thousand gratitudes to you and may your day and the rest of your, the life of your book be brilliant.
Evolution with host Heisey Lutmers. We hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with high C. Please join us next time for Evolve with Robin White Turtle Lizney, Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m. This is Deb Carousella. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>